EWIRE is the vibrant network for women in clean energy. I'm Rachel Hayes, Associate Director of Regen and founder of the EWIRE Network, and I'm delighted to be joined by this podcast by Emma Pinchbeck. Emma is the Chief Exec of Energy UK, a position that she's held since July. She is an expert in decarbonisation and the energy transition. Emma had her first baby in October 2019 and shares childcare with her husband. She is passionate about efforts to improve diversity in the energy industry. Previously Deputy CEO of Tradebody Renewable UK, Emma also sat on the board of Scottish Renewables. Prior to this, Emma was Head of Climate Change at WWF and she has an MA from the University of Oxford. I'm delighted to welcome Emma to this EY podcast. Welcome to this EYR podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Emma Pinchbeck, who is the new CEO at Energy UK. So hi, Emma. How are you doing? Hi, I am good or as good as you can be after 2020 and the start of 2021. Yeah, yeah, I know. Everyone like badge 2021 as like, a, oh, it'll be different, but it's actually yeah. worse or worse because it's January. Lockdown in the summer was actually yeah. not so bad, but lockdown now is... Uh, dull January is a bit dull <laughs> it is a bit dull yeah but you know I'm fine very lucky all of that stuff can't really complain apart from being locked in my house most of the time with my lovely husband and <laughs> sleep maniac baby <laughs> yeah no it's it's a definitely definitely a challenge are you got your baby in nursery or anything or is... yeah so she goes yeah. to nursery Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and and so far which is amazing because it's quite a big nursery so the mm-hmm. probability of this was low but it's so far it's managed to stay open which is great so I'm pathetically grateful for for them and the mostly women who run it and look after her and then I have her on Fridays all day and my husband has her on Mondays all day and we designed that system pre-pandemic and the idea was that we'd get a day away from the office you know back in the house with the baby but now the reality is there's a baby and the other one of us in the house and the day that the other one is trying to work so you know yeah, it's not quite not quite so easy. I know I'm very grateful that nurseries have stayed open this time because I had a three and a half year, well, three and a bit year old at home whilst working full time in the summer. So I was quite grateful yeah. just to open the kind of patio doors into the garden. And but I couldn't do that now. So yeah, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> so impressed with the parents that have got like mobile children. The first the first lockdown, um, I was still on maternity leave. So whilst it was intense course, yeah. for a different reason, I was at least you know, there was a dedicated carer for the baby. Yeah. And she wasn't that mobile. Whereas now, honestly, if the closer those streets, it'll just be mayhem. But, yeah. you know, we'll hope. and my team, the ones that have got children are just doing an amazing job. You know, we've, yeah. got, we've made some changes to the business to help them. But nevertheless, it's, you know, genuflect at the people that are managing everything right now. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I have seen some very funny clips, actually, online that have made me laugh quite a lot of people doing homeschooling. I'm trying to homeschool with a full time job. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look very easy. So Emma, I just wanted to kind of touch on like your your drive to work in the sector and your kind of early career. Because I met you at She Sustainable event about I don't yeah. know how many years ago that was, maybe five, maybe more. <laughs> yeah, like a really um, long time. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I guess we both kind of share that kind of passion for networking and meeting other women in the sector. And yeah, I just thought your story about your driver for working in the sector and your kind of educational background was quite interesting. Yeah. Okay. So my educational background is in many ways 
not particularly relevant for this in that I did a humanities degree. I'm the first in my family to get a degree. And honestly, we were so naive, like brilliantly naive about it in that my mum just said, oh, just go and do something you love. They kind of encouraged me to do my homework and really thought because I was bright, I should be going to university there of that Mm -hmm. generation. And, And so did I. I had quite a traditional view of what university was about. And I was artsy, I suppose, at school. And so kind of got pushed down that humanities route and don't get me wrong I loved it but as such I ended up doing a classics degree I did a year of Latin at school so I did ancient Greek really relevant um <laughs> they used that much like the current secretary of state and the prime minister so okay the, the really good thing about about my degree was I went to Oxford and that was like mind expanding in every possible way socially just so different from anything I'd ever experienced and uh really challenging and definitely a system where you're constantly being assessed. So it, so the speed of like knowledge acquisition and then having to deploy something relatively coherent in front of people that are really expert is actually something that I feel even as a CEO now, I spend most of my time doing, you know, you have to kind of like absorb a new topic and then and, and say and learn enough about it that you can be broadly coherent and talk to impressive people all the time. So, you know, but my degree was useful in that way and, and very stretching. And I met amazing people who are still my best friends. And I thought I wanted to be a barrister because, again, humanities degree, mm-hmm. not much. None of my family had a kind of professional degree in, the, uh, you know, in, that, in that way. So that's what you did with a humanities degree if you wanted a profession. And, but even then, I wanted to do something worthy. So I think I, think I there's, there's stuff where I talked about wanting to be a human rights barrister and things like that as a teenager. But I did a lot of environmental stuff and I come from Stroud in Gloucestershire, which is where Extinction Rebellion are from. So I kind of grew up in a place that, you know, fomented rebellion of all kinds and (laughs) was really deeply rooted in the kind of in nature and this kind of connection to a community. And so I'd always been passionate about green things. And I ended up going to work in the 2008 just after the 2008 crash and there weren't many jobs so rather than become a barrister I took a training contract in the financial services okay yeah and and again I would never have said I'd have done that ever but I also saw with a lot of friends that graduated before me that people tended to assume that if you had a humanities degree particularly a classics degree that you just were not very commercially minded or not really fit for work or couldn't add up or you know didn't have any STEM skills so I knew that if I just did it for a bit that would help me for the rest of my career and um so I started that and then David Attenborough ruined my life because a year in to my graduate training contract Frozen Planet came out and I remember sitting in my now ex-boyfriend's house and watching the final episode and it focused on climate change and being so angry it was kind of visceral like Mm -hmm. just so upset by it that I think I watched it maybe on the Friday night and I quit my job on the Tuesday. Oh, I, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then went <laughs> to look for something in the environmental movement. And now having a year, a year in inverted commas, a whole year of commercial experience, there was a job being advertised for Acuity Consulting that was then a startup. And they specialised in energy and environmental consulting for small companies who were largely green companies who were trying to build new technologies. And I kind of that and that was the job that I got and and that was my entry to the energy sector and I haven't really looked back since 
Yeah, no, that's good. I think my kind of, I had a kind of renewed interest in the start of my career and your career, like just touching on that today, because I've been we've been interviewing this week for advocacy and impact interns and just the standard of people that's coming amazing. out of university, getting their first job like they're kind of drivers to do something good and to make yeah. a difference to the the world and the planet it's just fantastic yeah they're remarkable and I, I think I in part got lucky because some of some of that every you know when you get to a certain point in your career people ask you about your journey and it always sounds much more planned in hindsight than mm-hmm. it was at the time yeah, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. a, with my career it's often been Oh, a job's come up and it's just looked interesting for the for the next thing. It hasn't really been premeditated, but yeah. the strong thing for me is that sense of vocation. And I have worked so you know after the consulting firm, I went to WWF where I headed up the climate change program in the year of the COP, which is just the most incredible privilege and the mm-hmm. most you know just it makes me want to weep thinking about the people in that organisation and and just being part of a movement in that way. And then went to Renewable UK, which is a trade body for uh, largely wind, but the renewable sector. And again, working working back in the, I guess, the private market. And I've so and I've so seen the agenda from lots of different perspectives. Mm-hmm. But the important thing for me is that there is an agenda, even if even if it it kind of um, weaves it, a bit. Yeah. yeah, and and I think for graduates with that like strong sense of vocation, the job that they want would want is the head of climate change at WWF. That's the like moral mission led. Yeah, just get to speak the truth to power, and 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 that's all you do, job. And it wasn't like I said, just the, the most amazing fun and a brilliant privilege, and I saw real change happen. But actually, one of the things I've loved about my last two jobs is that I have seen how fast industry is moving relative mm-hmm. to policy, and I get out of bed every day fundamentally terrified by how little time we have on climate change and working with businesses who are trying to change infrastructure and have the capacity and the capital to do it I really enjoy you often come home at the end of the day working with companies and you know that you physically change something and that's quite that's it that's that's really good fun but that yeah climate change is the thing for me with um an overlayer of energy geekery which is you know <laughs> same for you too yeah certainly yeah there's definitely the, ge- the geekery in the energy sector and it is the speed that the sector's moving is is incredible the, yeah the kind of the cost curves on solar that we saw and then now on storage are really interesting and yeah i'm quite motivated by that kind of the business case and the the prices coming down and that kind of the kind of yeah how that's spreading more widely I think pragmatically, I sort of have to assume the worst because that's how you plan for bigger change, right? So I never want to back the best case scenario, but it is quite rare that you can sit in a job and you'd be wrong so many times in the right direction. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, we've been wrong. <laughs> Even those of us that work in renewables and on clean tech have been really wrong about how fast it can deploy. And I try and remember that humility about the time that we're in, yeah. that this is... It is a bit like the start of other industrial revolutions where we it's all just new and we don't really know how quickly this can move. We do know where the barriers are to it moving, but what happens when it takes off is just a mystery. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, so your, your two roles at WWF and uh, Renewable UK, you know, the, you know, WWF was quite a senior role. You're quite young at the time. Like, yeah. how did you make, but one, how was that in a senior role kind of managing a 
managing people and having that kind of respected voice being a young woman and also yeah and I guess then you move to be more senior at Renewable UK slightly different kind of structured organization Um, yeah so the WWF job was a mix of skill and luck and I know you're not supposed to as a woman talk about luck having anything to do with it (laughs) and and don't get me wrong I kind of you know I manufactured this bit of luck to a degree but I was very young and I didn't have a huge amount of experience when I got that job I was 26 I think and I'd been working two years maybe Mm -hmm. three years when I was offered it there were two jobs up in the WWF climate team um, at the same time one of which was a policy manager role Mm-hmm. Um, and one of which was the kind of head of the team and I'd seen both <laughs> I think I'd actually posted on when I had it, I used to have a Facebook account and I posted on my Facebook account the head of the team job and was like laugh out loud dream job and I didn't apply for the head of job I think I started an application for the policy manager job and then completely by chance the recruiting director who the climate team reported into at WWF was on the same panel as me at party conferences that year. I was like sat next to him and we were talking about heat decarbonisation. And I remember thinking, if you if you even want to apply for either of those jobs, you need to really be impressive on this panel. So, you know, like you know, I was speaking to, to him as much as to the room. And then party conferences are one of those things where there's often networking in the evenings. And he was in the bar in the evening and it is the most uncomfortable thing <laughs> I've ever done in my life but like I kind of sidled up to him and was like hi I've seen you've got two jobs going in your team yeah and let me tell you why I'd be great and honestly I just wanted to die inside at all of it like approaching someone I didn't really know at kind of pitching myself and the conversation but I remember thinking oh the conversation didn't go that badly and he asked me to send in my CV for the head of team job which I did and then they turned me down like two days later and he phoned me and he was like I'm sorry Emma you're really you know really enjoy meeting you think you're really skilled but that we just had some really experienced candidates for this yeah. job and and it, it's been a fairly vicious filtering process as you'd, as you'd expect and I was like well please consider me for the role in the team and then they phoned again about two weeks later and they'd interviewed people and just hadn't quite found quite the right fit and, and NGOs it's so cultural. It really is about kind of living the mission and, and having a kind of vision for what you want to do with a team. And I guess they just hadn't found quite the right person that time around. So they asked me in and I kind of thought that they were thinking of me for the team role. So I was really relaxed in the interview and I had a lovely time and a lovely chat. <laughs> and then they offered me the head of job. <laughs> so, Amazing. Yeah. And that was, I mean, it was, like I say, partly manufactured because I made that conversation happen partly them taking a massive risk and being willing to and then having my back actually in the job while I kind of got up to speed and partly that I had the right qualities for what they were looking for you know I didn't have a huge amount of experience but I had the right ideas at that time for that team so that yeah I was young in terms of how it went you know I I think in every job when I've taken a, a new role I have been relatively young compared to predecessors or peers Mm -hmm. and then often unusual in being a woman not always but that's often it's often the case that I'm one of few women in the room yeah and you can see the skepticism or perhaps I feel the skepticism you know the imposter syndrome either way I kind of I'm aware of it for about six months about six months before people realize that I 
am willing to listen to them that I don't think I'm more expert than they are that you know that I have a very particular role as a team leader but they've got very clear roles as subject matter experts or um and that I'm quite I'm good <laughs> like I was you know I'm, I, I'm good at my job and I'm willing to learn and then normally normally everything relaxes yeah I won't pretend that I don't I don't feel a bit like a fish out of water for the first three to six months it takes a good six months doesn't it to kind of embed yourself in a new job yeah. and a new role and I think that's perfectly natural I think the other nice thing about moving up is that you can get you get to be more who you are you don't have to you know in some ways as a graduate I was much more worried about how I presented myself and thoughtful and it was much more stressful mm-hmm. that to try and fit into a role in the kind of hierarchy as it were whereas once you're in charge you can kind of get away you're, you're partly being hired for who you are as well as yeah. your skills and there's this brilliant freedom with that which I really am enjoying mm-hmm. I think yeah so now you've there's loads I want to talk to you about your current role now like yeah. so but yeah I guess it's kind of being who you are now you're kind of setting a new culture in in the organization and I think you know Energy UK from the outside definitely looks like it needed that new fresh kind of voice and culture and face and how does that feel like it's particularly yeah starting in this in these really challenging times with a yeah. new baby I'll come on to the I'll come on to that <laughs> come but. on to the baby yeah, yeah I mean I can't get through a podcast without talking about my baby come on now but um what do I think I so I was hired pre-pandemic that's worth <laughs> noting <laughs> wonder whether they would have hired the same person for a global pandemic you'd hope so but the job is therefore different to the one yeah. I expected so I was very very explicitly a change candidate you don't hire me for jobs or someone someone um mm-hmm. with my kind of background and and the strong decarbonization agenda and all of that and the twitter account if you <laughs> aren't after uh, or recognizing a kind of cultural shift and that was very much the discussion at interviews you know to to be fair that that, that is exactly what the board were interested in what we were trying to explore in the hiring process mm-hmm. and I think we're doing some of that at Energy UK and 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 I'm hoping that you will see a bit of a shift we want a faster modern diverse thought leading mission-led organization that also mm-hmm. delivers for our members right that's what we're going to build and but and but there is a global pandemic on, so the job is also just keeping the wheels turning for the sector, doing the basic operational stuff that we need to run and power the economy. Mm-hmm. And that is a different skill set to the like change stuff skill set. And I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying finding that balance. And and I suppose the big challenge for me is always can you find that what has traditionally been thought, thought of as the kind of gravitas you need mm-hmm. for really big moments and when industry is worried and it isn't just, you know, cracking jokes on the internet and kind of talking about decarbonisation, but something more um, in the traditional mould of the CEO. And 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 mm-hmm. that's what I'm thinking about right now. That's where I feel most vulnerable. And it was really nice for me because I my probation was signed off and the board thought I did a good job last year and that's nice because it's I'm I'm a CEO in a very different world than the one that I was hired for yeah it's also that that kind of getting through that period is a bit of a breathe a sigh of relief like oh I made yeah. it 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you say, first six months of a new job, it's the same even at the top. You're kind of like, oh, what am I doing? And I can't see, I haven't met any of my team yet in person. I haven't been to yeah. the office. We're changing office, which is a decision I signed off on, but it means I don't think I'll have gone into the old office apart from once to visit my, my predecessor in my previous role, you know, as a, as a meeting. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's all, um, it's all so bizarre. I've done the whole thing over Zoom. Yeah, and it's, it's, really, it's a really interesting time as well because you've got members who are kind of what's in the old world, kind of where you're yeah. representing them and you've got members in the new world and kind of striking that balance between, you know, a coherent viewpoint that you can present to yeah. government is, is definitely got its challenges. You know, I, yeah, you know that's, I've that's... got a lot of experience of member engagement and I don't envy yeah. you that position. It's pretty challenging. <laughs> it's the best and worst thing about trade bodies, you know, that that I think trade bodies and membership associations are really valuable because you can speak for the sector, you know, mm-hmm. and you can really, you really get an insight into every bit of the problem. If, if you know, if you care about decarbonisation, actually understanding how the energy system works is critical. And I get to see it from every possible angle at Energy UK. Mm-hmm. And I love that. The challenge is getting businesses from all the different bits of the system to align. And as you say, getting businesses that are at different stages on the transition for decarbonisation on board with, you know, where we're going. But I I tell you what, the the great thing about the first few weeks in my job is that I kind of got to speak to some of the members and we had introductory phone calls. And I was genuinely worried what they would think at large of the board's Mm -hmm. decision to appoint someone with a very clear decarbonisation background. Yeah. You know, I think in an ideal world, you for trade body CEOs, you might have someone with good experience, but not necessarily a strong personal agenda in the way that I have. Yeah. And I was worried about it. And actually, not only have I been really warmly received by the membership at large, but also every single company I spoke to understands what net zero means to their business. Mm-hmm. And the nuance comes from where they are along the transition curve. Therefore, the different support mechanisms or the different policies that they need right now for how their business is today, there is no question in anyone's minds about where we're going. Mm-hmm. And so I haven't found a particular conflict at all. In fact, it's that we are the energy sector being the delivery vehicle for the whole of a net zero economy is, you know, rapidly becoming our kind of standing position. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I think the... Um it's been quite disparate the kind of the trade represent trade body representation for the clean energy sector anyway so I think there's a definite opportunity for you to have a really strong position and voice yeah so I think that's it's encouraging I think yeah and that was the punt for me you know people ask about well you know isn't it isn't it easy to be in a in an organization whether you know renewables or kind of green was the kind Mm -hmm. of founding principle of it or were you more comfortable at a global NGO working on climate change like WWF? And of course, the issue is clearer there as the mission driver, but I'm not sure the outcomes are as powerful because mm-hmm. we've got, you know, Energy UK represents the whole sector and net zero is is a challenge facing the whole of industry. And so understanding how to get them there and, and those companies getting that journey right makes or breaks the net zero transition. And, and therefore, I find the kind of potential for change huge. But aside from that, the other thing that Energy UK has is we've got the energy retailers. Mm-hmm. And and they've um, definitely had, they've been hit by the impacts of COVID. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also they are the people that are going to be talking to all of us about our energy use. Mm-hmm. And 
we're about to start decarbonizing heat and buildings and transport properly. Yeah, and, and there's a huge communications piece there around. Exactly. Heat. Yeah. And and the people doing a lot of that or trying to find ways to make take up of things like heat pumps attractive will be retailers. And yeah. I'm really enjoying having that and not just the infrastructure, but also the offers to customers and the communication to customers and the people bit of the energy transition. And in fact, that's why I took the job. Yeah. Good. So have you always wanted to be a CEO? Is this, did you know this is kind of where you were headed? Like once you're in Renewable UK, you kind of understood the kind of, yeah, My the, mother, a membership um, organisation where you're like, yeah, I want to run something like yeah. that. Yeah, no, because <laughs> no, who does that? Honestly, I think you must have to be a bit, I'm sure there are people that are like, uh, like, you know, there's that joke about the prime minister saying he wanted to be world king. And as far as I know, I didn't <laughs> say anything like that as a child. Um, I don't, I didn't want to be a chief exec as an ambition it is definitely still I want to be in jobs where decarbonisation comes first mm-hmm. that said I do like to be in charge of things I think if I'm being honest I really I like leadership roles I, you know I I enjoy both being part of a team and then getting having a kind of like leadership role in the team mm-hmm. and and I think it is scary but also really fun to to help to really be able to drive the shape of an organization and to to make decisions that you hope are kind of going to be impactful for your industry so that's I enjoy that bit of it but no I didn't it wasn't like I started my career and I was like I want to be a chief exec that's just that's a natural progression that's happened I suppose yeah so if you had to pick out your kind of top three traits for being a leader or being a CEO what, what, what do you think they are? I think having an idea of what you want to do, like it's not enough just to want to be the boss. You actually have to have some idea of what you want to do with that. And (laughs) and that's much more important. So having a vision for the organisation you're in charge of that you think will both safeguard that organisation's future and and give the people who work for you some joy every day, but also Mm -hmm. the kinds of roles I like, as we've talked about, the ones where we're changing something. So like Mm -hmm. that strategic vision piece I think is important I think the second thing is that you um and this definitely applies in trade bodies you are the flak taker and key communicator for your team mm-hmm. you know you you're the person that translates that strategy or what they're working on to your stakeholders whether that is your members in my case government media other people and so I, f- I feel like I'm often the ambassador for my for the, all the clever people that work for me because I can get into the rooms that they can't and doing that really well and representing my members at a trade board that's a huge part of my job so that kind of ambassadorial role and the communications role and then for a chief exec because that could just be a strategy director you know or someone or, a, or your your comms director the other thing that I really have to do is be able to like run a business so yeah. you know in my case, make sure enough people want to be part of the membership of Energy UK that we have subscription fees that we can then pay for the team that can do the interesting work. Yeah, um, you can pay everyone's mortgages and feed them at yeah, the end that, of the day. You yeah. know, that, that, that we're looking after them from an HR point of view, that we're, you know, have an eye on things like diversity and inclusion, how we hire, that we're training our staff, that, you know, all of that operational stuff too. It's a mixed skill set. The, the last the last thing I say is I think there are different kinds of CEO that, as we've talked about, Energy UK, we're looking for someone with um, 
that more of that visionary piece because mm -hmm. they they wanted a change and that's the kind of person they came looking for but you know maybe in two or three years time what they'll want is someone with more operational experience or kind mm -hmm. of kind of like commercial experience so I think it's a mix of things and then I also think it's the right fit for the right organization at the right time yeah yeah definitely so I guess talking about having a baby and I know we've had quite a lot of conversations about this because I was kind of yeah. a couple of years ahead of you in the yeah. in the journey kind of sharing my pain but yeah so what made you apply for a role whilst in the very early days of maternity like is that <laughs> I is that lack of sleep deprivation from my baby <laughs> it was again being very honest, I've been I've been asked about the right. You know, when a when a role a chief exec's role in your sector comes up, and you're a deputy chief exec of another similar organisation, you get mm -hmm. phone calls. And and for very senior roles, it tends to happen in that way. It's a recruiter led, and you you get asked, and you recommend people, or you say yes, I'm interested in kind of putting my name forward. That happened in the summer, and I was very heavily pregnant, and mm -hmm. I really loved my previous role. And I said, <laughs> I am very much in my right mind so no thank you I think you know, no, big, no big life changes for me please and thank you and apparently and this is this is really lovely but apparently my predecessor Lawrence and, and several other people really pushed the recruiter that they should try and get me to the interviews and yeah. that I was the right person you know they'd obviously talked about what sort of person they wanted and I fitted that description so the recruiter was amazing I should I, I should I should say that they were it's Ellis Atfield. I don't. This is a, a free promotion for them because <laughs> uh, because I'm sometimes skeptical about recruitment, um, but they were so good and um, he was really kind and really persistent. And eventually, he managed to get me on the phone. And I just had my daughter by then. I think she was yeah. like maybe a week old, and she wasn't very well. And I was really sleep deprived, as you know, from a yeah. from a newborn and he had kids himself and he was just really thoughtful about how he approached the conversation and he eventually said and this is this is true look it sounds like you're having a really hard time I don't want to make your life worse but I think having an hour off from the baby where you can be yourself again would actually do you some good and you are a pretty unusual candidate and you're not uh, he's like like you say you probably wouldn't get the job and I know you're saying you're not interested but just come along and have an hour off and you'd be a really interesting challenge you know for the recruiting board anyway and it would just be nice to meet you and he came ended up coming to a coffee shop back when coffee shops were open near the house that I was living in yeah um and sat there and had an introductory chat and then I had two more interviews where I went to meet the board and the whole thing was just designed around come and have a conversation come and just talk to us about what you think the future of energy looks like. Come and just think about work for an hour and not, and not think about the baby. And so they let, really lured you in with free time. And, me <laughs> in. and I don't think any of us, I mean, I was so, I remember texting the recruiter at like three o'clock in the morning before one of the interviews and him, he apparently had briefed the panel that I'd been awake at three o'clock in the morning. And I think it's just a different part of your brain that kicks in. Cause I obviously, you know did find that I did really enjoy it I really liked the board I really enjoyed having that time where I could feel like I don't, myself again while I was yeah. still trying to learn who I was as a mum and I found myself excited by the challenge there was a long process in deciding I, it was I, I did have a really hard start to motherhood my little girl wasn't very well and, and I struggled with it all and so it took me ages to make a decision and they were really really patient about that actually mm -hmm. they gave me some extra time 
let the other candidates go and they would have re-recruited if I said no so that whole you know the whole thing was just really well done and in the end both my my boss um human ear at renewable uk and um several other people said it's a really great opportunity and you can see what you want to do with it and and they're making you they're being really generous with you and i and they'll obviously take care of you as a mm-hmm. new mum and and what a brilliant gift and you should say yes and then i thought about it some more and then i thought about this piece about it's so amazing that they've got both infrastructure and retailers and people and I could really see some potential for what the organization could be and once Mm -hmm. you've got that in your head as a chief exec you can kind of see what you want to do so I said yes there we go that was a long yeah sorry but it wasn't it was mad it was a really bizarre period and like you say I think a lot of it was just I kind of I went for some time off from being a mum <laughs> literally <laughs> to make a chief exec so I didn't have to think about motherhood yeah, so. <laughs> I think, you say that you know you were trying to find out who you were as a mum and trying to find out who you are in the kind of world of work I think yeah I've, oh yeah I haven't worked that out necessarily myself I think it's so, a constant juggling evolving beast it feels like yeah I agree and you said to me the other day when we were talking about this would I still have done it if I'd known what being a yeah. mum was like in the kind of long run which is starting to dawn on me now she's like 15 months old and probably not I'm not sure I would have had I would have had the bravery to to know what my life would be like and still go through with it but I'm really glad I did you know I I didn't know any better and uh, and here we all are and you know she's great and I am much more confident about who I am as a mum and who I am at work and I really am enjoying the new job so it's all worked out that yeah. was definitely not planned no it's an exciting time you've got you've got to reshape yourself anyway when you return from maternity yeah even if you're working with people you've worked with for 10 years like you are a yeah. different you're a very different person I don't think I'd ever contemplated how much I would change I was very much like you know I'm gonna be I'm still gonna be a career woman I'm gonna be an awesome mum and yeah. I, I'm not compromising on anything like why should I <laughs> yeah and uh yeah you, you do compromise on everything <laughs> yeah and but, you actually I this is I haven't told you this I don't think but we well, there was we had a dinner when I was really heavily pregnant just before you know before I went off on maternity mm-hmm. leave and um you know people were various parents around the table were, were telling me about their experiences of being in a you know working parent and I think you said that to me that it won't be the same going back you just have to there's this huge shift and you can't expect to do your job the same way and nor should you and that's fine and um, but just kind of be prepared for that and when I was thinking about am I really ready to take on something so different and go back mm-hmm. to an environment that isn't Comfortable. Um, familiar mm-hmm. and away from a team that I loved to you know that was was that sensible I do remember you and a couple of other people saying well it will be different anyway so it may as well be completely different yeah. um yeah. yeah so the other thing you're obviously really you've always been a real passionate advocacy for diversity and mm. for seeing women coming through the ranks and kind of giving them a platform and voice and what's your driver behind wanting uh-huh. more diverse teams and the answer on a corporate level is diverse teams are high performing teams and when you think about something like net zero it's whole social and economic change we're talking about so you do need as many voices as possible and perspectives as possible in the room so that that you know like I don't think this is something that can be done to people we want all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds in the room because it's a massive you know engineering um social economic environmental challenge Mm -hmm. and so 
in every possible organization we know that diversity leads to better outcomes when you're working on something like the energy transition that's even more the case so that's the that's the um corporate answer the personal answer is I enjoy it (laughs) I I enjoy people with different perspectives and points of view and experiences and backgrounds and I am self-aware enough to know that my position is based on a kind of degree of privilege you know like I I am the first in my family to get a degree, but I went to a grammar school, which I think is part of the reason I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, I I went to a grammar school because I grew up in a really like relatively wealthy part of the country, you know, and my parents valued education. And I, even though it's great that I'm a woman in this role and that's unusual, I'm still a kind of a white middle class woman with an Oxbridge degree. So mm-hmm. how remarkable am I really? <laughs> so, and I... And I think being conscious of that, the the reason you got where you are, I think it really does drive me to help people that don't have those kinds of experiences because it's all the more impressive when they're kind of coming through and they mm-hmm. they need the support that was just given to me. And, and then on the um, diversity and kind of opportunities and privilege, like my mum also fostered a bit when I was in my 20s and and especially now I've held my own baby and I know how privileged she is going to be just by just by the fact of who her parents are. You hold children that are tiny and you know what their life outcomes are likely to be yeah. literally because of the like how they've been born. And I find that I find it remarkable that people can't see that there is a kind of inherited privilege, mm-hmm. like all kinds of privileges that are given to us depending on the circumstances of our birth. And I think in a really decent flourishing meritocratic society that we should do what we can to to tackle those barriers Mm. I'm not kicking the chair away I think if you get to you know you it's possible that in previous generations particularly with gender if if you you made it to positions like the one I'm in you really had to kind of fight for it and then often there was a kind of implicit limit on the number of women in the room you know like there was one woman and that was enough women so so that that meant you had to kind of defend your position a bit more and and I'm I feel very much like I should use my platform to make sure that more women come through rather than you know just someone to replace me like we should be constantly trying to extend out yeah we should probably bring it to a close but yeah really lovely to talk to you Emma nice chatting great well thanks Emma take care bye (laughs) 